Welcome, friends, to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are bringing you exegetical insights and preaching tips for Exodus, nope, not that one, Ezekiel 34, (laughs) verses 11 to 16, and 20 to 24, which is the first reading for November 22nd. Spoiler alert, we're probably going to add a couple more verses than the RCL wants us to. But here to walk along with us through this rich test is a special guest exegete for today. That's right. Uh, Today, our guest is Reverend Dr. Zafwat Marzouk. Dr. Marzouk grew up in Egypt, where he was eventually ordained and served as a pastor in the Presbyterian Synod of the Nile. His interest in the Old Testament brought him to Princeton Seminary in the U.S., where he earned his Ph.D. Safwat is now a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew Bible at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Indiana. He's a teacher, pastor, and scholar, just the mix that makes him perfect for the First Reading Podcast. He also has some real expertise in the book of Ezekiel which we'll do our best to exploit in just a moment. Our episode today is also special because we've been invited to share it with the readers of the Politics of Scripture blog over at politicaltheology.com. I've been on the editorial team at the blog for a couple of years, and Dr. Marzouk has been one of our essay contributors there, which makes this a great way for us to do a bit of cross-pollination with them. So welcome to you, Politics of Scripture readers. And all of you first reading listeners, take a peek over at the Politics of Scripture blog for another great lectionary resource. You can find Safwat's essay there, and if you're interested in more of his work, we'd also recommend his book, Intercultural Church, A Biblical Vision in an Age of Migration. And if you want to dig further into Ezekiel, he has a great book on that as well called Egypt as a Monster in the Book of Ezekiel. We'll put links to all of that on our own website. Safwat Marzouk, a very warm welcome to First Reading. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Tim, for the warm welcome and the generous introduction, and nice being with you uh, and Rachel as well. You know, it it would be great to hear from you, Safwat. You've mentioned in some of the things that you've written and in your bio on your website about how uh, growing up in Egypt was like growing up in an, an interfaith context where Christians and Muslims uh, and Jews were together in sort of daily interaction. How has is, how is that experience of growing up in that kind of environment influenced your own scholarship? Yeah, um, it, it has indeed shaped a lot of my interest uh, in my work. One of the things I care about is how to read scriptures with other uh, believers of other faith and other religions in mind. Uh, and especially as we approach uh, the Hebrew scriptures to be aware of how the Jewish community and the Christian community may read the same texts and end up uh, understanding them differently. Mm. How also some of these traditions uh, made it into the Quran mm. and have shaped the Muslim faith and how all of that impact how people relate to each other across mm. religious difference. Uh, so that has been something formative for my interest in reading the Bible. And I'm interested in how that also shapes our uh, relationships uh, among people of different faith. Yeah, that's neat. It sounds like you almost have a couple different ears to listen to scripture with. You have the the Christian ear, but you also have the the ears of a little bit more tuned into the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition. And so you hear it in kind of different layers as you read the text. Yeah, hearing it in different layers and also being open Mm -hmm. uh, to be being enriched. 
uh, by uh, other understandings of the same scriptures mm. uh, and also understanding the impact of how these scriptures have shaped these relationships, sometimes in conflict and sometimes also in peace building. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's that transformation of conflict into peace and justice for those who are involved in these relationships that I am uh, passionate about and I long for. Mm-hmm. A recognition that our identities are never pure mm. and they are, all, they are always built, uh, hopefully not over against, but in relation to the other mm. that is different from us. Well, I think identity is a really lovely way into this text because this text has a little bit to say about identity and, and to whom people belong in this text. Um, so would you would you read it for us? We're, we're going to expand it a little bit, which is kind of our want here on first reading. But if you could read maybe verses mm-hmm. 1 to 16 and then um, hop to 20 to 24, that would be lovely. Or you Absolutely. could read right through from 1 to 24. Let's be crazy. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we're... Uh, you know, we're expanding the boundaries yes, of the lectionary. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Porous boundaries. Yes. <clears throat> so I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version of Ezekiel uh, 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, you have not bound up the injured, you have not brought back the strayed, you have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high place. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search seek for them. Therefore, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild animals. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth so that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the water courses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them with justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? But you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? When you drink of clear water, must you foul the rest with your feet? And must my sheep eat? what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled with your feet? Therefore, therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you pushed with flank and shoulder and bothered at all the weak animals with your horns until you scatter them far and wide, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be ravaged. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will sit up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, so this chapter, it, it begins with kind of that prophetic call formula, but it's been a while since we've worked with prophetic texts on first reading. So maybe you could just kind of remind us and remind our listeners, what are aspects of prophetic texts that we should be aware of when we're reading and interpreting them? There are two kind of reductionist ways that uh, many of uh, the readers of uh, the prophetic text tend to go to. Uh, one is that uh, the prophets are all about predicting the very far future, mm. Uh, mm. either messianic uh, understanding of these prophetic texts or even world events. And the more we read the prophetic texts, the more we realize that they were also working with their immediate context. Mm. They were right. messengers uh, by God uh, to God's people in a given historical moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, in which uh, the prophets were uh, in the business of diagnose, diagnosing what went wrong mm. with God's people and also prognosing how the people should reform themselves and change themselves. Mm. So it's always important to ask ourselves, what is the historical context in which uh, these prophets have spoken? Mm. What are the political and the socioeconomic circumstances that they were addressing? The other pitfall that sometimes uh, some readers of the prophets fall into is that they think that the prophets are simply social reformers. Mm. 
But these uh, reformers uh, were always speaking from a theological perspective. Right. So they were not uh, in uh, the business of separating faith and politics. Yeah. So as much as it is important for us to read uh, the prophetic texts in their historical contexts and to understand their literary features, the kind of genres they use in order to speak, in order to communicate mm-hmm. their message, it is also important to ask about the theological perspective of each mm-hmm. prophet that we're reading, Mm -hmm. whether they leaned into the priestly uh, theology or leaned into the Davidic covenant or leaned into the Mosaic covenant uh, and so on. And that speaks to our context as uh, we try to figure out how uh, faith relates to the public space. We cannot separate faith uh, from politics and economic questions, but it's what kind of theology and what kind of faith approach are we bringing into the conversation? Right. So we'll, we'll try to do both of those things in our conversation here, to have an eye towards Ezekiel's own historical and social context. But then also, what, what is his theological lens on that situation, and, and what does that do for us in our own world? Mm-hmm. But maybe we could take just a minute to talk about um, Ezekiel's own historical and social context. What, what can we say about that, Safwan? Yes. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet of the exilic period. And the exile, if we want to use a more contemporary familiar language, exile is simply forced migration. Mm. The, as the Babylonian Empire inherited uh, the Assyrian Empire around 609 uh, BCE, the Babylonians started to uh, threaten uh, the well-being of uh, the Judeans. And they deported uh, various uh, groups and communities Uh, starting with uh, 597, 592, and then 587 uh, BCE. And Ezekiel was one uh, of uh, the people who were exiled. So Mm -hmm. his context is that of uh, forced migration. His context is that of uh, trauma. His context is that of someone who uh, has been deprived of his home country and uh, his culture. Uh, the religious institutions that would have given uh, sense to the Judean community uh, have been threatened, have been uh, destroyed uh, by uh, the Babylonian imperial hegemony. So he's a prophet who is speaking out of pain and suffering and agony. And being in Babylon himself, uh, he is still interested in the politics of what is happening to Jerusalem. So he's caught between the place of his exile, the place of his forced migration, but also his home country, Judea and uh, Judah and uh, Jerusalem. And he's trying to make sense of this disaster, of this crisis, through his priestly uh, understanding of God's relationship with God's people. Well, and I think that's fascinating the way you said that I'd never thought about Ezekiel in that way that he is a prophet who's been stripped of the institutions that facilitated meaning making and sense making. You know, he's had this this huge traumatic experience with the rest of those who underwent forced migration. But the tools to make sense of it and to make meaning of it, uh, he has to recreate those tools along with finding the sense and the meaning in all of it as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the courageous things about the prophetic literature Uh, and the prophets in the Hebrew Bible is that they were willing to expose these institutions when these institutions went wrong. Mm. So rather than trying to find the wrong peace in corrupt institutions, 
they were willing to try to find new ways to make sense, mm. not by uh, reinstituting corrupt institutions, <laughs> but rather to deconstruct them mm. in order to build something new. Mm. Um, and, and, and this speaks to our contemporary context in some way where we, we find within the different uh, faith traditions that we are part of, uh, some people who are trying to say peace, peace, mm-hmm. because we have uh, we have God, we have the temple, we have these institutions and God is on our side without really looking deep into how corrupt these systems can be mm-hmm. and how these systems are reinforcing oppression mm-hmm. and marginalizing people and buying into xenophobic politics. The prophetic voice is saying that we need to look inward to employ the self-critical lens to measure uh, how are we doing as uh, institutions so not to find false peace Mm. and that's this is where where i find their voice quite significant for our contemporary context that's right yeah i mean the the prophets have their fair share of railing against outsiders but the sharpest critique is often an internal critique and we we find a lot of that uh, in this focus text as well. Maybe we, we can pivot to that. Boy, it, hearing hearing you read this passage again, I was just blown away by the the way that Ezekiel is able to take a metaphor and really run with it. Oh man, so many different directions. <laughs> Absolutely. So so the the shepherding and sheep <clears throat> metaphor is pervasive through this. Um, what what do we want to say about about that and how Ezekiel kind of uh, pulls that thread through this text. Yeah, I mean, as you said it, he <laughs> he runs with the metaphor. This is, I would say, uh, I think one of the really extensive uh, kind of metaphors that Ezekiel goes with. He is he is a uh, a prophet of metaphors, yeah. lots of mm. uh, images, lots of uh, sign acts uh, that are pervasive in Ezekiel. Uh, he's really creative when it comes to getting the imagination of his audience. Uh, up and running. Mm. And for our contemporary readers, when we hear about the shepherd and the sheep metaphor, we imagine, you know, these beautiful hells and, (laughs) you know, very serene and uh, which is, it's a beautiful image. Mm. And I don't want to ruin it for uh, our audience and for uh, readers of the Bible. You want to add to it. You want to enhance it. I want to add to it. I want (laughs) to, yeah, make it more rich. (laughs) Is that, is that this metaphor and this image was uh, quite popular in the ancient Near East. It's a royal image. It's mm. a royal metaphor. So yes, as much as we imagine uh, a shepherd caring and tending the sheep, we need to also remember how in the ancient Near East and in the Hebrew Bible, mm. how this image have been used and employed in order to speak about the royal responsibility. Mm. That those who are in power... Their power is for the sake of uh, those whom they reign, reign over or rule, mm. which illumines why Ezekiel also uses this metaphor in order to pass judgment over those who have abused their power, yeah. who did not care for the sheep, the people, but also in order to speak words of restoration, mm. where God takes on this role of being a shepherd who tends, who cares uh, for God's people. So to put it in a brief way here, Ezekiel's metaphor of the shepherd is a critique of those 
who look after themselves, mm -hmm. those who are in power, who feed themselves, who benefit from the sheep, take the wool, take the meat, and never do something of benefit mm -hmm. for the sheep. But not all the sheep even. As Ezekiel uh, points out, he emphasized those who are weak, those who are uh, lost, and those who are injured. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Ezekiel's way of measuring how those who are in power use their power is how much they actually tend the weak, how much right. they heal the weak and the injured, how much they look after those who have gone astray. Mm. So it's not just about those who are doing well. It's yeah, about yeah. the powerless being empowered, mm. the broken being healed, mm. and those who are kicked outside of the community being brought into the community. Mm. That's how good shepherds are to be measured. Mm. Well, and it's interesting, too, because the metaphor kind of develops because it's, it's definitely a critique. And at first, it's a critique of the shepherds who have not done the things that you have um, you've talked about. And then all of a sudden, in verse 20, there's a critique of sheep. I will myself will judge between sheep and sheep because it's like God steps into the shepherd. It's almost like God reclaims the shepherding role. And then yes. now those who were the shepherds are exposed almost as just sheep who have muddied the waters and stepped on the pastures. And uh, is that an accurate read of this? Or what happens when this metaphor shifts right in the middle of the chapter? Yes, this is at least how I read the, the shift where God looks at the sheep, because it's not just about the royal power. Oh. It's, also, it's also about uh, the systems that are within the people themselves. Mm. There are other uh, layers yeah. within the Judean society that have in some ways also made it worse yeah. uh, for the broken and for uh, the powerless within the sheep. So we find Ezekiel critiques the elite early on in, in his oracles of judgment. He critiques the priests. Mm. Uh, so it's not only directed towards the, uh, the royal family uh, or the, the, the kings of Judah, but also those who possess other sorts of power nice. within the Judean community. Whether that shift is post-exilic, uh, because Ezekiel now speaks uh, about them being restored to the land, mm. but now that they are back, and maybe this is similar to the uh, third part of the book of Isaiah, what kind of relationships have taken place mm. within this uh, uh, restored community? So sometimes a restored community is not an ideal community. Mm. Sometimes a restored community also is in need of figuring out their power relations. Mm. And I think God is stepping here to say that even within that uh, community, that restored community, there is still a much needed critique for those who are within this restored community to be held accountable, mm -hmm. to realize that they are still pushing aside the powerless, mm. to realize that they are still benefiting, they are taking their own food, and then they are muddying the water yeah. and ruling the pasture for others. Uh, there is another tension that is going on here, especially as we continue in the metaphor. God claims to be the shepherd, but then God says, but I will raise a shepherd, <laughs> one shepherd, right. David, uh, reference to 
again to this kind of royal lineage, uh, the Davidic dynasty, mm. which to me raises an important question about divine agency and human agency. Mm. In the work of restoration here, God takes on the responsibility, but God says in some ways, I cannot do it without human agents who are willing to step in and become partners in this covenant of peace. That's right. Uh, and this covenant of shalom, uh, shalom is uh, a word that is way bigger than mm. the English word peace. Mm. Shalom means wholeness. It's more holistic. Mm. It doesn't just talk about God's relationship with the people. It talks about uh, how they relate to one another as well. So I think what we're confronted with here, especially as we talk about uh, political theology, is how, how does God bring about this healing? How does God bring about this uh, restoration? How does God bring this covenant of shalom without the human agency? Can we trust the human agency without God being the shepherd who may put this human agency in a check mm. when this human agency thinks that it can do whatever it wants? Mm. Right. Mm. So right. that tension is, is really important as we think about uh, restoration, transformation, how faith and politics relate to one another. That's right. How God works through human institutions mm. and human agency to bring this covenant of shalom into effect. Yeah, that's so helpful. And and I think that's probably a great way to turn into some uh, preaching helps for those folks who would want to use this text as the foundation for a sermon. Uh, we have some thoughts on that, but um, I wonder, Safwat, do you, uh, do you have any thoughts yourself? I, I wonder partly because the implications of this text for wider society seem to be really on the face. But I, I wonder what sort of message this text would have for uh, communities of faith. I think it's an important starting point is to uh, see some uh, connections between Ezekiel's time and the times and the lives of those who are reading these texts on a Sunday or uh, within faith communities. It's important to, th to reflect on uh, those who have been suffering from xenophobia or homophobia, those who have been pushed to the side, those who have been hurt by racist discourse, white supremacy, uh, black people who have been longing for healing and justice in their communities and uh, are still long ways to go uh, for this to happen and to be actualized. And even on individual and communal levels where people have suffered from COVID-19 and uh, sickness, and those who are in power in our contemporary context, who look only after themselves, who do not look after those who have uh, suffered from racism and from the pandemic, those who have uh, suffered economically because of uh, the pandemic more than others because of the race and because of their socioeconomic context. And we have political leaders who uh, look only after political propaganda, who only look after uh, winning an election, uh, who only uh, try to literally, as Ezekiel would put it, feed themselves and feed themselves off those whom they should have cared for. 
So this uh, this text is speaks a volume, and this is not just towards one political party. Mm-hmm. This is not just one uh, towards one political system, but it is speaking across the board. It is speaking also internationally, where there is a rise of uh, far right politics and populist uh, politics that uh, looks only towards dividing people, that looks only towards uh, feeding their own tribe, feeding their own communities that look like them. And they don't look after the ones who are powerless, the ones who are suffering, the ones who do not have the means, the ones who do not experience justice in their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's significant for preachers, for Christians and Jews and Muslims who may encounter texts like this to realize that God takes the side of the powerless that God interferes on behalf of not those who are doing well, Mm -hmm. but those who uh, are lost, those who uh, have gone astray, those who are suffering, and those who are sick, and those who are weak. So when we say Black Lives Matter, and we hear other people say all lives matter, we find that Ezekiel here is saying no. The lives of those who are oppressed are the lives that matter because they are clearly the ones who are in need of experiencing this divine intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, those yeah, who have yeah. suffered so much from the pandemic are the ones whose lives matter here in this text, and God takes their side. Yeah, I think that's really the profound theological angle of this text. And and that's what I would include as well in a sermon. I was drawn to, especially verses 15 to 17 there, where God takes on that role, that kingly uh, shepherding role, and says, I myself will graze the flock. I will make them lie down. I will look for the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bandage the injured. I'll sustain the weak. And the fat and healthy ones I'll destroy by feeding them justice, just is so striking that God, in a way, plays favorites in this text, Mm -hmm. that God is giving special attention to the more vulnerable members of the flock. And I think that is a message that, especially within American Christianity, we really need to hear. We're, We're so inundated by the ideology of American capitalism where it's acceptable and celebrated when individuals amass such great wealth at the expense of the poor. We see that as something to to celebrate. But this is a text among many others that has a critique of that sort of view of our systems. And I think that's a message not only for faith communities to have as as a critique of the political leaders in our society, but also those of us in faith communities who are among the privileged members because of certain factors of how we were born and into what sort of class and ethnic group and uh, economic situation. We need to take some of this in as self-critique of how we've benefited in a way that it's made us fat at the expense of the lean members of the flock. Absolutely, Tam. I This last point is significant. If it, leaks, it makes us also look into our communities, not just at the leadership level, mm-hmm. but also uh, as neighbors, as you know, worshipers go to similar sanctuaries, uh, worshiping at the same time. But clearly, we have been either 
privileged or uh, underprivileged because of the systems that we uh, participate in. And I think I really like the quotation that you read from Ezekiel and the way it ends in, in, that, in those verses, I will feed them with justice. That justice there is transformative to also our contemporary understanding of justice that focuses so much on merit. Justice mm-hmm. here is about need. And that's one significant difference between how the Hebrew Bible talks about justice. Yes, there is this tit-for-tat kind of justice that we see in the Hebrew Bible. But there's also justice that is about fixing a broken system, putting things in the right. And that happens by meeting the needs of the powers. Yes, that's, that's so helpful. And, and Rachel, what would you want to add to that? How would you use a text like this in addressing a congregation? So when I think about preaching this text, I, I think what we've lifted up today so far, one of the things that I really like about what we've lifted up is how this text is multivalent, how this text speaks layers upon layers, and it um, puts God in the role of sort of outward judge who then moves in to become a shepherd, who then moves in even more to um, empower human agency to be brought into the whole process of the covenant of Shalom, as you were talking about. And I think that's a really lovely way to preach this text. Talk about its multivalence, talk about God coming closer and closer to human history. And as God comes closer and closer, God asks us to come closer and closer as well. There's sort of an invitation there that's underlying um, this whole text. I think it's also really interesting to pause over the person of Ezekiel, as we talked about his historical context, as a person who's been stripped of the institutions that have given meaning making. I think if the pandemic of the coronavirus has shown us anything, it's that many of the institutions upon which we relied to give meaning making, we were taken away from for a while. And it can be things as little as as sort of innocuous as um, shopping therapy that people talk about um, huh. or, you know, the coffee clutch that happens on Thursday mornings, which seems simple, but we use to participate in our meaning making. So now that some of those have been exposed or taken away or been shown as less essential to our lives, what are your folks left with? What are they using now to make sense and to make meaning of the recent election, of COVID-19, of everything that is happening in their lives? And what does this text perhaps offer them that might contribute to their meaning making? So that's kind of where I, I went with it today. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, this really has been wonderful. It's been so great to get to see your face and to talk with you for a while. And I hope that our paths continue to cross. Same, Tim. Safwat Masuk, thank you so much for being here. It was just a delight to talk with you. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Tim. It's been a delight for me as well. Well, remember, friends, you can catch more of our past episodes on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And you can also find us on our Facebook page. So take a moment and look us up there. If you have some friends who haven't heard about First Reading, please spread the word and let one of them know about us. We want to make sure we say thanks to Kai Engel for that extra music during the reading. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Shalom, preachers. Shalom, preachers.